For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Dirt Talk. It's the second one I've recorded today, so I am on a roll. Today we have Isaac Barlow. He's the CEO of Busy Busy. It's a uh, a software that's used by a lot of, of the companies we work with and a lot of contractors around the world now. It's just it's blown up. Uh, someone reached out, I think it was earlier this week, and said, hey, this guy, Isaac, I, f- I feel like you guys would have a great conversation, see eye to eye on a lot and see what the... Uh, have a lot of the same opinions as far as where the industry's headed, same frustrations. So Isaac, I'm very, very happy to talk with you. Thanks for making some time for us. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate being on the show. So your background is not software and tech. It's it's construction, which I think is pretty cool. How did you get That's involved right. in construction? How did you start a company? You know, probably very similar to a lot of your listeners. I got involved in construction because that was kind of the family business. You know, I, I grew up in a, a household of excavators, people that were in the excavation trade. My dad worked for a large excavation company. And so my older brothers, you know, they got into excavation when I was going through school. I had planned on being an engineer, but ended up kind of falling into the family trade. And so literally got started in the trenches. They threw me in the trenches and put, put me to work. And nice. so I just kind of worked my way up in the industry from there. That's the best place to start. So uh, when did you fall into business ownership? What was the, and you went to college? Um, I went to college later on in life. I didn't first, you know, I came, I went into excavation right out of high school. No kidding. And then went back to college later on. Yep. Okay. Just started into business with my brothers. They invited me out of high school to start working with them and eventually to get some ownership. And so I just started going into business management probably around early 20s. Wow. So your brothers were already, they were already doing their thing? Yeah, they had started a business before I had graduated high school, and they they basically said, "Hey, you're you're great with numbers. Why don't you come in and help us on it? You know, we're great at production. It's pretty funny, but it's it's pretty common how these businesses get going. You know, someone gets an idea and just says, "Hey, I'm great at what I do. I'm going to go start doing that on my own." And then a lot of the rest of it becomes a learning curve that you figure out. And so, at what point? How long did you work as the family business before you started to see some of the the issues that contractors face? Not long. I mean, I, I would say almost immediately, you know, I guess my, my nature is kind of analytical. So as I was, I was growing up, you know, going through the different, you know, I worked in the trenches and then I worked as an operator and then eventually as a job foreman and eventually project manager, estimator, and overall business manager. But I guess it was kind of just all, all those positions, just analyzing just the way construction operates. And the best way I would explain it is 
construction is often organized chaos. Yeah. You know, we, we have a semblance of order, but, you know, we get things done. I'm not putting it down, but, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And one of the biggest chaotic things I noticed was how the, the, the subs kind of had to interact with each other on the job site. You know, in the excavation world, on a lot of times, we have the benefit of getting there before everybody else so we can work on our own. Mm-hmm. But then on these big commercial projects, you end up also having to interweave with all the other subcontractors. And it, it can be quite a chaotic mess. So, I mean, how do you go from operating a construction company to, hey, I think I can go create a software to solve some of these problems? Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a very far reach. That is a far reach, yeah. I definitely think I have a, a certain line of crazy in me. But. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not not terrible bad. No. Really, it was just born out of frustration. So, like I say, my nature is very analytical, and so as I went through the process of, you know, actually doing the work on the job site, I ended up being one of the most profitable crew leaders or project leaders out there because I would analyze the job every single day, you know, what my what my expectations were, what the estimate was, break it down, try to track productivity, try to motivate people, try to plan the job properly, do all those things. And so my profitability per job was, was really good. And then as I end up encountering some of the issues, I guess, that came from the office and the, I guess the story that explains it best, I was doing a project where we dialed in our systems, our job site systems, just about as well as you could possibly dial them in. And so we were performing at an extremely high rate, getting the work done. And it was the highest performing project I'd ever seen from a boots on the ground operational point of view. It was installing utility, utility lines for a grocery store. And when we got done with the job, I came to Galvis and I said, how did we do? I said, well, you sucked. You lost $27,000. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I said that's, that's not possible. I said, if, if we lost that much money, this doesn't, this industry has no money. Yeah. Because I've never seen a job perform as well as this did. But I'm, a, I'm kind of a why guy. I, I have to find out the why behind things. I can't just accept. I can't just accept things. I got to know why. So I dug into it and, you know, investigated the whole job, you might say, and dice it down and found out that the estimate was botched ahead of time. We had lost the game before we ever started. And if the company really understood what we had done out in the field, if they really had the right tracking and monitoring systems and understood where their job sat, it would have been more like, thank you for helping us not lose the $100,000 that was likely to happen. Yeah. You know, so basically we, we mitigated the loss because of our high performance, but there was no way we could overcome a bad estimate. So that made me start to really get into wanting proper data. You know, I want a proper data so that you can feed the estimator the right data so that they can estimate the jobs properly, you know, productivity data. So obviously an estimator, they, they did the job based on their best assumptions of, of how the productivity is going to go on that job, you know, with the combination of what machines do I use and what manpower do I use to, to install different items, whether it's heavy earth or sewer line, water line, whatever it is. And so that got me really wanting data. And so then when I started down that course, you know, I ended up going into the office and kind of taking more of a, a general manager role where I started trying to collect all the data in quick. And the best source we had for data really was our time cards. That's the one thing that you continually get. So you get mm. these paper time cards into the office and people write down how many hours they worked, what machine they're working on and what they accomplished. If you're lucky, yeah. you get that information. Yep. <laughs> but it's your only source of data because it's the only thing you can kind of count on because they get paid on that. So that's what they're motivated to. And then, you know, if you're running a good company, you get the supervisor to take that data and translate it into a daily report. But in my kind of exasperation to get that data and get it accurate, get job passing done properly so 
that I could get the right data and information to run the business properly. I was just kind of frustrated and thought there's got to be a better way than this. And back in 2007, I, I think it's 2007, I had a, you know, what I'd call a vision, just a vision of, hey, this is a better, there is a better way we could do this. You know, we, we could have these things kind of work together because the data we need doesn't need to be this difficult. And so I uh, kind of sat on that idea for a while in 2009. I started, you know, wireframing or mapping that out. I, I hired a, a designer to wireframe, map that out, map the idea out with me. And in 2011, I hired a developer shop, you know, coders to start developing the idea. And, and prior to that, I'd taken on a consultant, unbelievably valuable, taken on a consultant in the tech industry. He was, his name is Dr. Eric Pedersen. He was the Dean of Technology business and technology at Dixie State University and so hmm. anyway with his guidance hired programmers and, and since then I've you know had to go through that learning curve because technology was a hell of a learning curve to go through. Yeah, yeah I, I, I try to stay away from it it's too much for me but to develop this solution was were you developing the solution for yourself and for your company so you could operate it you know more intelligently and that was it or did you sit there and be like you know what I think I can really, really invest in something that other contractors want as well. The second one is what I, I thought, and it was kind of where the thinking had to go because once I started saying, okay, here's the solution we need, and I started trying to get some feedback on it, it became obvious really fast that the amount of money it would require to develop that solution would be way too much for a single company to swallow. Gotcha. And so the only way it would work is economies of scale. You don't have to be able to be inexpensive. It has to be able to be cheap. So to say we've invested well over $20 million and we charge 10 bucks a month per person. You know, you just cannot, no, no company can swallow that on their own. Yeah. Well, except for a company like Kiwit that just buys up software companies. Um, right, right. Kiwit, yeah. Kiwit's an exception, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, no company can swallow that on their own. Yeah. No. when you're going off to start this, did, what did everyone else that you worked with think I mean, what, what were the reactions to you wanting to go off and build a, a whole software product to solve a problem? Is it, was it like, what the hell are you doing? Or, man, this is going to be amazing. What, what was that like? <laughs> well, if you want an honest answer, That's they what were I'm good friends. For. And so yeah. they were good friends. And so like me, they were full of ignorant optimism. <laughs> we had no idea what the hell we were getting into. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot more work than we ever realized it would be. Yeah. What did you underestimate now, knowing what you know now? Like, what were you just very ignorant about when you got into this? Into the software development, it was the underestimation was massive on the amount of dev resources, of the, the cost of product development it would take to make a solid solution because I had absolutely no idea. And the way software works, it's just, it's different. And so, to give you a, a comparison that would probably resonate with a lot of your listeners is, Imagine like, you know, we go out in construction, we go out and we build a, we build a building and with excavators, you know, we're excavating, we're doing the site work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have a plan, you're doing the site work and then you build the building and you're doing something that's been done many, many times before. And so you have kind of standards and methods and, and practices and things, you know, whether it's a foundation or whether it's a wall, whatever it is, they've all been done before. And so even though your building is, is new and unique, it's been done before. But the way to think of software development is imagine you were going to go out and decided you were going to build a school and no school had ever been built on the planet before and there were no plans and there was no nothing. Mm. And so as you're building it, you've got to kind of invent your plans and invent your specifications 
and invent everything as you're as you're going, you know. And that's that's a little bit of what software development's like because you're you're in new territory, and so you don't have all the standards now. That was 2011. It's it's getting better and better where we're getting more and more things we can plug in, right? Yeah. But I'm saying that is literally how it was like. It was like building a building with no plans, no specifications, and no prior no prior buildings being built. You know, so the, so you're just kind of inventing everything the whole way along. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of painful lessons along the way. And I'd love to hear about some of those a little bit. Now, when you were looking at this, like staring this in the face, how much of this did you re- realize, like, I need to go learn versus, you know, hire people that already know what they're doing? What was that balance like? That's a really good question because my, when, if someone asks me what I'm good at, that's my general response is I'm good at hiring the right people. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I usually look for, I look for the, the best people in their specific talents and trade, whatever, whatever the case is to hire. And the only downside of that here, I mean, and I don't know if downside is the right word is it was a learning curve for me to know enough about this, to be able to guide it better. You know, mm-hmm. in, in most cases you need to at least, I mean, you need to have a little bit of knowledge in order to guide it. Right. So that was the learning curve I went through and it, it was a costly learning curve. Yep. But you need to have enough knowledge at least to know how to guide the talented people. And so hire people with, with the best talent. I'm I'm not one that would say, oh, I need to learn to code. You know, that's not the way I would think. I would think I need to hire the best coders. Mm-hmm. But then you still have to have enough knowledge of the industry to guide them because you're building a vision. You're building something that hasn't been built before. Were you, when you first started developing this did you step away from the construction business or were you still actively engaged in the construction business and basically doing this nights weekends you know every other waking moment that's what i did it was nights weekends every other waking moment and it was kind of born right after or in the midst of the the great recession and so in 2009 when i started designing it what i did after that is then i I spent the next two years between nine 2009-2011 doing market research i hired a company out of connecticut uh, that was experienced in, mar- in market research with the construction industry to do surveys, market research on what I was thinking. Cause I wanted to know, I wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one experiencing these problems that I was trying to solve for. Yep. And then did a lot of mar- market research across the nation to see if, if the problems that I was looking at, if they were commonplace, the primary problem, what I realized that it was actually shocking. And it was shocking to me, I guess, because I was in that era of the great recession when, everything on the news is we're talking about bailing out people like AIG and too big to fail kind of uh, companies. And in my research, I, you know, of course, researched the construction industry and realized that 70% of construction businesses go out of business within seven years. They fail. They go out of business. But before the great recession, it just consistently about 70% fell within seven years. Wow. And the majority of those, of course, are smaller businesses. And the fascinating data to me was, well, small business employs 70% of the workforce, mm. you know? And so we're, and so I was really running that contrast in my own mind. We're bailing out these two big to build, but, but the small business owners are the ones that, that really are kind of the engine that drives our economy. Yeah. And so when I was looking at it, I kind of felt like, why, why aren't we doing something about this problem? You know, 70% of these businesses fell. That seems like an alarming rate. So then the next step was trying to kind of assess why they're failing. You know, like if you, you consider yourself like an ER, you know, someone's dying, then you start doing triage and figure out what, what can I do? What can I do to help? And what's the most important thing I can do first? Yep. And that's the way I tried to research the construction industry. And honestly, that's why we went into time tracking was because what I discovered was the, the number one problem is people didn't, 
didn't understand it and have a good methods to really comprehend their labor costs as they related to their estimates and their their job costing for tracking. And that was the number one variable. So it was the number one problem. And in, in your specific trade, which is my trade, the excavation industry, it is labor and equipment costs because it's the resources that it takes to do something. And, and going off that, what I've recognized in construction a lot of times, especially small businesses, is whoever started it or whoever runs it is extraordinarily at building stuff, is extraordinary at digging holes and moving dirt. But as far okay. as operating their business goes, they're terrible at it. They're, they're just absolutely awful. I was talking to Jonathan who connected yeah. us about the, this exact uh-huh. same thing. And we were joking about it, just saying, you know, trading stories about just the crazy stuff people do. Like his example was, you know, the guy wouldn't hire a bookkeeper to bill for 300 grand because the bookkeeper costs a few hundred bucks. And you're just sitting there. You're like, yep. what are you talking about? You, but, but that guy's probably incredible at moving dirt. Yes, you're exactly right. In all my research of the industry, and this is, this is nationwide, like I couldn't find almost any evidence of any of those 70% failures that failed from a lack of skill set. It was all a lack of business management. And, wow. and the, the term, the term that all the data pointed to, because I spent a lot of time researching this, and the best data came from bonding companies because they have to understand whether contractors are likely to fail or not likely to fail. Oh, okay. And so that, that was where I found the best data. But the reason for failure is insufficient information to make profitable and proper decisions. That was always the reason for failure. And it really, when you say insufficient information, that, you know, that's kind of a, a broad term, but, but exactly what you're talking about. It was poor business management practices. And so as I studied this, I, I already loved the construction industry, but I fell in love even more studying this because I decided, you know what, these people go out and they do something you know, that not many people want to do. I mean, they kind of ran out onto the battlefield yeah. and yeah, they're not quite prepared. You know, they don't have the business administration degree and all that, but they're brave and they're ambitious and they're excited and they go out and try to accomplish these things. And so what it is, it shifted my mind to think I, we've got to, we just got to help. Like we've got to help. You know, we need to build, if you use battlefield example, they need swords and shields, you know, <laughs> we yeah. need to give them some, some better tools because even though they're not, good business managers typically, and I agree, that is exactly what the data points out, is they're not good business managers typically. If you look at the information age, the information age allows the technology to automate a lot of those business systems for you so that you can focus on doing what you do best, so that you can focus on revenue-producing activities that you do your job. Going to the technology age thing, why do you think the construction industry is so far behind as far as technology goes compared to majority of other industries? That's a great question. Because it's way behind. It's 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 almost a joke it, it of how far beyond, beyond. I mean, and these companies will tout, you know, oh, wow, we use software and we use GPS. And it's like, okay. And then a self-driving car drives by me. And it's like, yeah, we're not, we're not there. The technology, it's just, we're just not there. I mean, why, what, what's created that? There's a lot of different factors that create that. And I'll, I'll guess I'll, I'll start with the one that I think, and you and I talked about this previous a little bit, but one of the big factors is in the construction industry, we have a problem with our pipeline as far as exciting and attracting new young talent to just come in and start getting engaged in the industry, right? Yep. And so when you look at technology adoption where you've got the construction industry has so much legacy workers in there that, you know, they're very skilled tradesmen, very experienced tradesmen that have kind of been doing things the way it's always been done. Mm-hmm. And it's that concept of it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. It is very hard 
to teach an old dog new tricks. And it's not that they don't want to improve. It's that it's really hard to get them to see the value of improving. And, and we've learned this so much in Busy Busy. Our, our number one challenge above all things is change management. Mm. You know, when someone adopts Busy Busy, it's, it's them getting into that habit change of starting to think more about reporting and accounting. And, and when I say accounting, I just mean saying what you did that day. You know, talk about what you did and, and the value of that. It's hard for them to get that that shift because they think, well, no, I just need to go out and get this job done. And so it starts with the old culture of kind of the legacy, but it's really a cultural thing. The leadership, I know you're connected with uh, a lot of great companies and there's some of those online that do a good job. But when leadership starts saying, we are a data first company, we are all about embracing new technology and new data and wanting to track and manage and understand and get the information we have so that we can be a better company, it starts shifting you away from that archaic mentality and culture, but it also starts attracting more talent to you. Yeah. Okay. Yep. You're preaching to the choir here on all these topics. I, I know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're I, gonna, I know. You're and get that, me and going. That's, yeah. That's only one of the symptoms, but it's, and the other reason, okay, because we fought this fight, is because the construction industry is very hard to change, and they are. Now, there's pros and cons to that. Like, we're stubborn. We're stubborn in this industry. Yep. But it's also why we have so much grit and we get things done. So it's like it's both our value and our curse at the same time. Yeah. But because it's hard to sell to the industry and hard to provide services to them, then it makes a lot of technology companies not be able to justify the ROI. You know, if you're going out trying to sell contractors, it's hard to sell contractors. And so you're trying to shift an entire culture. So it takes it takes people like you and I that are both passionate about it to say, no, this is a great industry. These are great people. They do an amazing thing for our country. They, they're they literally building our country. We need to help. And we've got to shift the culture. And they're not, when I say stubborn, I say it even admir- admiringly. They're stubborn and that's why they get things done. Yeah. But yet it's also opened up their mind to say, hey, there is a better way. There's a way that you can get things done, but also start tracking your data that then allows your company to grow and foster. And, and it's just an effort and it's a, it's a cultural shift. Yeah, I agree. To correct you, I'm not passionate. I'm just trying to get really rich. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> um, Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, lo- I love this industry. Um, I do too. Uh, I, I, I don't can we say I bleed, I bleed cat yellow, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you there. So, okay. So you have all these realizations, you do this market research, you have these exciting realizations that, okay, yeah, there's a problem here. No one's solving it. I can potentially solve this problem. You have this early product. How long does it take to actually create a usable product that's deployed in the field to start solving this problem of, of collecting data? It took quite a few years. It took us until 2014 to get a product in the field. And part of the learning curve of technology, you know, is we thought we had kind of won the race and we didn't realize we just got started. Wow. Once yeah. you deploy it in the field, then all of a sudden it starts getting battle tested and you've got to change and, and optimize and adjust all kinds of things. Yep. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. In, in the tech world, I often say everybody should think like a tech business. And I really believe this. The reason why is because the tech world is very intense and you, you have to be responsible for every single thing in your business. You can't ever blame anybody else. It's always your fault and you have to be the best at everything. So, mm. so we go out in, in those early days in 2014, okay, we go out and release a product and there's a lot of people just loving it. And then, you know, there's some of our customers that have reported to us that we suck. We suck really bad. 
<laughs> and, and contractors are great. They don't, yeah. they don't mind telling you that no, you suck. Like, no. <laughs> um, so, so we go out in the field and we're, and we're talking to this contractor and he just nods and he's like, well, your app just doesn't work half the time. And I was like, really? Like it should work. You know, I think it works all the time. So as, as we dig into it, we find out that he doesn't want to pay for data. And so he turns his data off on his phone. And so he just jumps from Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi as he's driving around and our, are, are, we're an app. It runs <laughs> off of data, right? And so, and I'm saying it in the construction world, okay, in my old experience in business, you, you say to the customer, well, come on, you idiot. Why turn on your freaking data? Yeah. But in the tech world, you can't. You can't yeah. say that. You have to look at that and say, you know what, if this guy's feeling like this, there's probably a whole bunch of other people feeling like this too. And it's our problem and we've got to fix it. And so we spent a tremendous amount of money rebuilding our entire system so it would work for the data collection portion, that it would work entirely offline. So it could collect data onto the app, and as soon as they got in Wi-Fi, it would send it back up to the server, get out of Wi-Fi, collect it on the app, send it back up to the server so that, so that the user sees no problem. Wow. And that's yeah. what I mean about thinking like a tech company. Yeah. I no, I love that mentality. So it took you five years. So you started sketching this thing out in 2009. Yep. You launched it in 2014. In that five-year window, were you sitting there looking at yourself in the mirror like, what the hell am I doing? Like, w- were there times where you were just like, what did I get myself into? Because five years of doing something without actually deploying the problem, that's a long time to hang in there. What, what were your thoughts during that period? It was a challenge all the time to keep going. For the first two years, you might say that the market study research and just kind of wireboarding frame, which was 20, 2009, 2011 before I started programming, that was a lot easier to stay optimistic. Yeah. But when we started programming from 2011 to 2014, it was it was extremely hard to stay in the game, and it was because every supposition that we had didn't work. You know, this would sound like it's my programmer's fault. It wasn't. It was literally we're building something that hadn't been built before. So I would convey to them an idea I had, and say, "Hey, this is what needs to be built," and they would go to work building it. You know, we design it and do the best job possible to spec it out. But they'd go to work building it, and it would take oftentimes as much as 20 times as long as what they thought it would take wow. when they got started. Wow. And so it was shocking. And, and so you had a ton of those days where you look at yourself saying, wow, do we bite off just more than we could chew here? And, and there were, I often tell people, you know, business should have failed a thousand times. And I think the reason it didn't, you know, besides praise God, which I am absolutely believe it's a tremendous amount of miracles that we succeeded. But besides that, I think, you know, myself and a lot of the other people involved, both on ownership and investment, and were actually contractors. You know, a lot of contractors were the ones who invested early and busy, busy and helped get it going. Mm. And I think in that industry, you know, I believe that the industry has a lot of grit. We have a lot of grit. We have a lot of, we're going to get this done. Yeah. And so we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, and that's where I say I admire the stubbornness. You know, <laughs> so there's some value to the stubbornness too. And how did you, you said contractors were, you know, investors, how did you finance the the initial app? How, how did you finance creating this? Cause you know, developers, they don't work for free and it's a lot right. of money. I'm looking at developers now for what we're working on. It's significant investment. Where, where did you find that money? In the beginning, we, it, it was just other contractors like myself, you know, I had money that I put in and then yep. I had friends in the industry and, and they, they saw the vision, agreed with it, liked the idea of saving in money. And that was a lot of the initial finance. And then eventually we got connected with some other groups like investors out there, like one of the cat dealerships 
ended up investing in us, you know, because we were we were solving a problem they were looking to solve. Gotcha. And then they introduced us to corporate Caterpillar and Cat Venture Capital. Caterpillar Corporate invested in us back in 2017. Mm-hmm. So worked us, which which to me was wonderful because you know I've always idolized Caterpillar. I'm like these guys are the greatest, you know, growing up in the industry. And so, you know, so I guess it was just step by step. Early on, it was just myself and associates and friends, and then kind of worked up the chain to we end up bringing in larger and larger capital to keep it going in the right direction. Gotcha. Now, it, it, I think I know the answer to this, but as far as like monetizing the product went, was that ever, I feel, at least for us, it's like, I know I need to monetize it one day, but if I build something that everyone needs, it delivers a ton of value that everyone will use, it'll make money. I'll, I'll figure the money thing out on the back end of that. What did that look like for you? Were you thinking through the money when you were developing the product or were you just like, let's just get it out there. Let's solve this problem and we'll figure out the money money later. One of our big setbacks early on was we were just kind of developing the product without thinking about the money. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird about a setback. And, and you know, of course, on this side of it, I could give you a lot of advice on building your software, yeah. like traps, traps to avoid, right? Yep. But it's the right way to think to say that I really primarily want engagement from the users. That's the right way to think. Number one is, is engagement above all things, because the truth is the money doesn't matter. I mean, if you think of it as far as a holistic goal, like take Busy Busy, for example, uh, my construction company does $10 million a year, the excavation company, and we are 10 bucks a month per employee. I think we have about 40 employees. And so our cost of busy busy is $4,800 a year, you know, of the 10 million, right? It's nothing. It's literally nothing. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether the system works or not. And so engagement is what matters most. Now on the other side of that, okay. If people don't pay for it, they often don't give you the valuable feedback like you suck and all the kind of things and, and get engaged. And so, okay. so there's kind of a balance there. Like you got to be careful that people actually value what they're getting. You know, like people okay. download something for free and I'm okay with free. Like busy has a whole free side of it. We, we you can use our entire application for free that, that will replace all your time cards, your whole team. Like we, we've made it to where the whole team can use it for free because we value engagement. And then where they pay for it is when they start looking for more of their data and analytics out of it. So we, but we give them everything for free that they need to replace their payroll, replace their paper time cards, process their payroll, you know, gather their reports, all that. We give that all for free. And it's because we value engagement the most. And so I guess, you know, just from an advice point of view, the right decision is whatever gets the customer the most engaged in your product. Okay. Wow. That just connected some dots for me. Holy smokes. Okay. That, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because if you're paying for something, you want it to perform. And if it doesn't perform, you're going to be pissed and you're going to raise hell about yeah. it and say, hey, it didn't work. And then you want to know that. You want people saying, hey, it didn't work. So you can go fix it. That's right. That's right. Wow. That's right. So so there is kind of a balance there that you have to judge. Because, you know, people forgive you a lot when you're free. <laughs> they pay you. Even if it's a small amount of money, they, they get pissed. Okay. So it is a balance. But, All right. But yeah, the feedback is is so valuable. You know, today we have you know, over 20,000 users across North America, Canada, Australia. God. And so to, today the feedback is so great. And, we, and we, we made a lot of effort at making sure that it was embedded in our product that people can go right in to the, the help section of the product and suggest features or agree with other people that suggested features. But the feedback is so great now that it no longer relies on me to guide the direction of the product. You know, now the developers 
and we have great people running our sales and our development part of Busy Busy. They get all that feedback now from the customers, and then they get it aggregated, and they and they see how many customers agree with that, don't agree, and so that feedback's most valuable thing. Based on the feedback, how is the product different now? Now that it's been out there for years, you've tens of thousands of people using it, tons of data points. How is it different today in practice than what you envisioned it from the beginning? I guess the, the big difference is the focal point. In the beginning, when I first wanted to sound busy, busy, I was going to create a soup to nut system that just literally covered everything a contractor needed for business management. Like I'm saying A to Z, your accounting, your your marketing, your networking, you know, some of the stuff that you're doing, some of the stuff I'm doing, you know, all of it, right? And, you know, timekeeping, collecting the time, that was that was just a byproduct. Like, we needed to collect that data. Of course, we need to collect that data. We're going to get that data. Yeah. And when we started collecting the data from the field, you know, the timekeeping, the, we do timekeeping, we do photo documentation, we do daily reports, we do safety signups, we do all these things. What the feedback showed us is that we had to get really focused on that element, like just the data collection from the field itself was such a big task when you do it right, okay? When you do it right, because you can do it. Like, you can make a form fill document that you tell people, yeah, put in the, the information, and you didn't solve any problems, you didn't advance the industry, you didn't give anybody better data. But when you're doing it right, where you're, you're keeping up with the compliance, the safety issues, the, the habit changing of the users, trying to pull in all the right data points to benefit the customer, that became such a big project in and of itself that that is all Busy Busy is ever going to do is collect data and report on work accomplished is all we will ever do. Wow. Okay. So if you have two companies using Busy Busy, uh-huh. or one company using Busy Busy, one company using paper time cards, they're identical otherwise. Uh-huh. How, how is the estimating process different? What's the advantage of getting this data, of tracking things? We've touched on it a little bit, but for someone that doesn't really understand the estimating process, what advantage does the company that's using Busy Busy have? The best explanation is historical and trending data. And so paper time cards don't really give you historical and trending data. You know, anything on paper doesn't. Yep. And I realize you can go through the effort of transferring it into some system that does give you historical and trending data, but most people don't. And so if you're on paper, you have no historical data. And so the, the worst thing about that, and it's almost a tragedy, is you're doing all this work and you're not learning from it. And so, so if you have one company on paper, there's many other differences, but in my opinion, the greatest difference is you're not learning how to improve your business every day. And so, you know, you hear people talk about working on your business versus working in your business. Yep. Until you start collecting the data that tells you what your company's been doing, how you've been performing on certain types of jobs, what you're good at and what you're not good at, then you don't have the information on how to, how to change and improve your company. Mm. And that's aside from the fact that the, the American Payroll Association tells you that you'll waste as much as 45 minutes a day per employee if you're using paper. Wow. And I'm not one to demonize employees and say they're stealing from you. It's just simply habit. You know, when people start clocking in and out, they start thinking more like, I think a good example I could give you is, is the report I got back from one of our customers. So he was a small customer, excavation customer with 15 employees. And it was, you know, this was probably about three years ago when he gave us this data. He, I checked in with him. I said, how's your business going? What's the difference as you're seeing? He says, well, I'm seeing about $5,000 more a month in my pocket than I was before. I said, really? I mean, that's an amazing testimony because you're spending 150 bucks a month on us and you're getting 5,000 out of it. So I said, what are you, what's the difference? And he says, well, first off, he said, the first thing that happened is it used to be that my guys always recorded like 40 hours a week. Everybody was 40, 40, 40. 
he says, we started using Busy Busy and they were starting to clock in when they showed up to the job and clock out when they left and people dropped down to 36, 37. They weren't actually putting in 40 producing hours. Yeah. And so the guys didn't, didn't like it. And he said, well, okay, let's, let's put in the extra hours. So he didn't, he didn't cut their pay. Like it wasn't that he saved hours. He said, I just started getting those extra four hours of production every month or every week. He says, the second thing is I, the way Busy Busy works when you're tracking time is, you know, you can track your time to your contract, you can track your time to extras. And so he says, I started realizing how many extras that I didn't realize we were doing out in the field that were just falling through the cracks. And so it was lost billables. I was, people in my company were doing things that were outside of the scope of work I had bid, and I didn't realize it. So then I started getting that data back and I started to make the money off that, you know, making the extra money that was falling through the cracks. And then lastly, he said, it shifted my, when we started doing job costs and I started realizing which jobs we were winning at, which jobs we were losing at. So I stopped pursuing jobs that we were continually losing money on and started focusing my, my growth towards jobs that we're making money on and busy, busy just showed us the difference. Wow. So it's a, it's a combination of those things. And that last point he gave, that's why if you're in the industry, a lot of times you'll talk to people that say, I used to make a lot of money when I was smaller, but I grew and I make less money than ever. That's why, because oftentimes we don't know which direction to grow. We, we need to grow in the direction we're most profitable. Yeah. Well, a lot of people, they, they don't understand that they can say no to stuff. And they, I feel like a lot of people, yep. they, they, they own a business, but they don't have control over the business. They, they just do whatever they're, they're dictated. Whatever opportunities come their way, they just take without thinking about it. And so I guess this gives them a way to actually sit there and be like, well, is this a good opportunity based on what I've learned in the past? No. Okay. Then I'm going to say no, because I'm probably going to lose money on this. And then now I have this time freed up to go focus on the better stuff. That's exactly right. And, and that alone, that thinking alone right there, you'd be surprised at how fast that'll double an organization's profit. Yeah. Like if you were making 5% before you can shift it to 10, just by doing what you just said. That's wild. Now, Okay, so you have tens of thousands of people using this on multiple continents now, which I'm sure is probably beyond your initial expectations by multiple magnitudes. How do you, as a business, make sure that every one of those 20,000 people are using this properly when, you know, realistically, you can't physically touch all 20,000 of those people anymore? That, that is a very good question. That's a great question. So you've noticed the 80-20 rule. Yep. Probably 80% of the people that use Busy Busy don't get full benefit out of it. Mm. They, they're just shifting from paper to, to digitally collecting their time. Now, yeah. that, that is a lot of benefit by itself. Yep. It's worth the money easily and a lot of benefit. But the power users, the 20% users, they get the massive benefit out of it. And so what we do at Busy Busy is we actually track engagement. We, we have a, we're really good at data collection. And so we, we track engagement of the customers. And we track, and when I say engagement, what I mean is how much of their product are they, are they using? How much of our product are they using? Are they using this, this, this? Because a lot of them, a lot of them don't use everything. Hmm. And so what we've been doing lately is we, we've hired a, a great person in client success and she reaches out to people and talks to them. You know, we, people that are using it, we can, we can see basically that they're using some aspects of the, of the application, but not all of it. And so we reach out and start talking to them and engage them and say, hey, you know, this was great. You're doing amazing and you have all this data you're collecting, did you know that you can see some of this data right here and that you can use it for this and this reason and you can do this and this? And it's awesome. And one of the ways we know who to reach out at is, you know, I told you we collect feedback from our application. Yep. 
we'll have contractors get on there and suggest items that are already in the product. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess like that's it, a good thing. And so yeah. it tells us two things. One, we're like, uh, we need to call them. And number yeah. two is, did we not make that clear enough in our product design? Uh-huh. <laughs> we need to, so. Okay. Man, there's there's just a lot to talk about here. There so it's a, it's a big story. It, it it really really is a big story. What's a big like notable problem you guys had as you as you've rolled this out and it's been in the field? I mean, have you? I'm, I'm sure you've screwed things up. What what, what are some of the? Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah yeah. I know we we don't have all day here. So so. But what's what's like a notable <laughs> screw up that you guys had to to sort out once this was launched? The biggest challenge when you start realizing that you're doing timekeeping and you're processing the data for people's payroll, the number one thing you have to be good at is having that data available for them to process payroll mm-hmm. at the clock in every day because you, you're becoming a, a very integral part of their system, you know, of their daily systems and processes. Yeah. And so early on, we had big problems where the technology failed and people woke up and couldn't use the application. So like for, and, and then it disrupts their business and that's a big problem, right? And so that was, when, when I told you we took everything offline where the app could work, whether or not at service, the other side benefit we got out of that is if the servers had problems, like one time, you know, we're hosted on Amazon servers and they're, they're the most reliable uptime you can have. I mean, he was talking 99.9% of the time, we're reliable, they're reliable, but they crashed after we did this. And it was a crash that lasted, I can't remember, it wasn't a long time, but it was, I think, four hours. And we'd had this happen once before when we were much smaller and it was amazing how much it had, it hurt our customers. It had bothered them and, and got them upset at us. But the second time this happened, they hardly noticed because the application worked offline. So it just collected all the data. Oh. <laughs> it just collected all the data. And then when, then when the servers came back on, it just sent all the data up to us. Yeah. And we were like, oh my gosh, that was a, in the construction world, that was a near miss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. But prior to that, we'd had a time where, you know, the system went off offline for a few hours and it, it caused a lot of people a lot of problems. And, you know, we had, we have a great team. And so they worked fast to get it online. And I mean, I say a lot of people are mad. It's, those are the voices you hear, right? But the majority of our customers actually just thank us for getting it back online so fast. Yeah. Cause they're, they're good customers. So as far as like selling this product goes, does you, having a contracting background, has that changed the conversation? Has that made you more of like a peer? Is that given you an advantage over, you know, someone that is just a software company, someone that's just a software company that, that hasn't been in the field? How, how much of an advantage is that? I think it's a pretty big advantage, especially in the excavation world. Yeah. Um, the excavation trade, which I know is what you're focused on, the, the benefit that we have is when you align yourself with a technology company, you need to not only align yourself with the company that's doing what you need today, but you really need to be aligning with their vision for the future because as busy, busy evolves, you want it to evolve in the way that's benefiting you as a customer. And because we are aligned with Caterpillar, you know, we're working hand in hand with Cat on things. We're, we're tracking the labor data and we're starting to bring that equipment data in and combine it together. The customers can see that that is our vision and that that's the direction we're going. And we're going in a direction that will continually make them more and more profitable. And it's because of the experience. And so they know, like like me personally, they know that I know their world. I've been in their world. I've done the things they do. And so I understand it. And I understand how to guide the product to accommodate it. Excellent. And it's a very proud industry, too. I feel like they only like to do business with people that understand what they do. Yeah. How are you guys different? 
I'm sure you're not the only one that does this. I'm sure you guys are the only one that does, you know, what you guys do specifically, but I'm, I'm, you know, I know there's other solutions out there. How, how are you specifically different than those other, other solutions? The first thing that narrows us down is just focusing on the construction industry, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a big narrow down because we focus on job costing analytics. So, so we do your payroll processing and your timekeeping like many other services do. But then the way that we collect and use that data and transfer it to daily reports, give you safety sign-offs and digital sign-offs for compliance for workers' comp and for Department of Labor and all those kind of things. So, so because of our focus is on the construction industry, that, that immediately narrows the field of, you know, who'd be a good fit for a construction company. And we're, of course, in that, in that narrow field. And then there's a lot of different nuances, you know, of, of course, to make us different. But for, you know, especially I think your audience directly, one of the most unique things is our, is our heavy emphasis on equipment tracking. So we're tracking labor, but we're also tying it to equipment. Yeah. Because in the excavation world, we really need to understand both those components. I mean, our equipment sometimes costs us, I mean, the fuel in our equipment sometimes can cost us more than the operator yeah. running it. And so, yep. you know, you know this, I've seen pictures of, on your Instagram of so many big machines. And I know how much fuel they burn, but bringing that equipment data and labor data together is so important and it's so unique to Busy Busy. You know, I don't think there's anybody else that does it like we do it. And the fact that we're, you know, partnered with Caterpillar tells you that we're going to continue to do it the right way. We're going to continue to evolve with it and, and do it the right way. And so that makes it pretty unique. And that was that, so the partnership with Caterpillar, it wasn't just money. It was strategic on the equipment side too. Yeah, it's, both money and strategic. So yeah. they're a big organization and they, they demand a lot because they want perfection, but they're wonderful. You know, they're, they're a good partner to work with. And so most of what we're doing together hasn't come out yet. It's, you know, a lot, lot kind of in process right now. But the benefit excavators get today is we, when their employees clock in and out, they track that time directly to the piece of equipment and to what it's doing if they want to. And so they can, they can basically track all the data, the performance data on their equipment, the utilization rate, and so forth, just by using our application, and and they they love that. Now, going to the the business side of things, choosing a partner like Caterpillar, I mean, that's an enormous decision. You're giving a piece of the company away, your your child. What are the important considerations involved in that decision? Like, what did you think about before you signed an agreement with Caterpillar and, and invited them in to you know have a piece of what you've been working on for so many years? One of the most important things we did up front is we said, busy, busy has to remain agnostic. You know, we're going to be working with Komatsu and with John Deere and whomever because that's where our, our customers use. Our customers yep. have diverse fleets, yep. right? And Caterpillar is great about that. They understood that. You know, they invested with us and we're working with them and there's no secret to that. But what Caterpillar, what we liked about them is their vision aligned with us is we said, listen, the way we make decisions in busy, busy is what's best for the customer. What's the best solution for the customer? How do we build this so that it really fits the needs? and help the customer be successful. And, you know, honestly, they, they aligned really well that way. And, and obviously we looked at, we looked at them as far as they are, you know, today with the customers that we target, Caterpillar is the global leader and they have a really great system of distribution through their dealer network. So all those things were big factors as far as how do we get exposure to the customer base? How do we work with customer base? Who has the, the largest saturation of customer base? We considered all those things. Okay. Okay. You spoke on this a little bit, your vision. What's your vision for Busy Busy? And, and what's your vision? Where do you see just the construction industry as a whole heading over the next 10, 20 years? Because I think, I mean, my belief is that we're, 
starting to see the biggest transformation we've ever seen as an industry. And, and it's going to, it's just a requirement to, you know, create the, this future workforce. We can't do things the way we've been doing it for the past 50 years. Well, how do you see uh, your product? And then how do you see the, the future of the industry shaping up? Wow. Those are both big topics. Yeah. I know. <laughs> big two big cans let, of worms. Let me see. Yeah. They are two big cans of worms. So first off, uh, the product, those two questions tie together because, of course, where we see the industry going, where I see the industry going, and where we see it as busy, busy, we try to follow. And follow is probably the wrong word. We try to lead. You know, we try to help lead it, help guide it where it's going. Yeah. And what we feel like is that the industry, one of the biggest transformations that the industry is going through is it's going to become more data-driven. I know that by itself is a big can of worms, right? There's tons of offshoots of that statement. But the industry will become far more data-driven than it ever has been. And the reason it will is because if you think of the information I, I gave you just on customers using our product and how much more profitable they are than when they weren't using our product, right? Yep. Well, what that starts to do is it starts to guide uh, competitive nature. Because if I'm data-driven in my business, and you're not, for instance, I'm probably going to win you in the marketplace. And I'm probably going to outcompete you. I'm probably going to outperform you. And so, so the whole industry, you'll have the early adopters that make the most money. Like people who get on early and start becoming a data-driven company, they're going to make the most money because it's that early market opportunity. But just like the example I give people is 15 years ago, we didn't all use GPS. GPS was a luxury. Today, it's a necessity. You know, we have to be on GPS or we're not going to survive. We're not going to be able to compete. I believe that as, you know, obviously we're in the information age, but the information age is working its way into construction right now. And we, of course, want to help lead that. And I believe as, as companies become more and more competitive that way, then the companies that are not that are not proactive on that are going to have a hard time competing. And so I think that's one of the big transformations is we're going to become more and more data-driven. And as we become more and more data-driven, I think we're going to clean up a lot of the in the construction industry. I have a good friend that's actually Paul Campbell at Wheeler Caddy. He's a good friend of mine. He says, a lot of cash covers up a lot of sins. <laughs> and, yeah. and the construction industry might not think they have a lot of cash because it doesn't feel like we take home that much. But the truth is we process a lot of cash, Yep. especially in the excavation trade. You know, our equipment costs so freaking much money to run and operate and the maintenance and the fuel and everything. It's a lot of cash, right? So when you operate inefficient, which I argue that the majority of contractors operate inefficient, then you're covering up a lot of sins. What are those sins? Those sins are opportunities. Mm. So as you, as you embrace the more of a data-driven mindset and information age, you're going to start seeing those opportunities. You're going to start making more profit, a lot more profit. And then eventually that will drive the new, the new way things are done. Gotcha. Wrapping up here, what, what would you say to the owner of a company that's still doing everything old school, doesn't really want to change, not a whole lot of technology? I mean, what, how do you approach these old dogs and kind of show them the way of, of, of the future? That's a great question. And I guess if you, if you want my answer, as, as Isaac, a construction business owner, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, as a, as a busy, busy CEO, I, you know, I, I try to get people to just take one step at a time and break what they can and and move into the technology as they can, right? Which is great. You know, that's, that's wonderful. What I would say to you comment on earlier in this podcast, which is sometimes people get really hung up on things that are very low cost. I would say that you need to, you need to focus your company on revenue producing activities. And you need to consider that the cost of say your man 
and the piece of equipment they're running, that probably averages anywhere from ten to $30,000 a month. Mm-hmm. That is your cost, right? If you are worried about spending 10 to $25 to $100 for a software that gives you all the information you need to manage that piece of equipment, and I'm not talking about just busy, busy, okay, busy, busy, vision link, on and on and on, right? Yep. Equipment tracking. Then I think you need to really reconsider how you manage a business because basically you're stepping over $100 bills to pick up pennies. Yeah. You need to spend the money on that information collection. You need to spend the money to get the data that you need to run your company properly because you don't even realize how much time in a day that your machines are not spending their time on revenue producing activity that you could know. I mean, like I would say very honestly, like, I mean, take me out of busy, busy in my contractor head, get busy, busy, or get something like that. Get telematics on all of your machines. Make sure that you're getting data that you're collecting on all of it, every single bit of it, so that you're starting to manage those resources because that's where your focus needs to be. If your focus is on how do I save a few pennies here and there, you're literally going to miss the $100 bills that are floating past you in the stream. The the crazy thing about all this is you're not saying anything groundbreaking. I mean, it, these are very nope. simple concepts. And and busy, busy, I know there, there's software. It's, it's very complicated, this and that. It does something very simple. It tracks time. But that's right. it's remarkable how prevalent these problems still are. I mean, I see them all the time contractors just stepping over they're not focused on the big picture it's it's still across the industry almost every state i go to it, it, it's just amazing it, it is it's astounding and if, if we got into the numbers of how much that actually costs you'd be shocked how much is wasted and unfortunately contractors aren't getting that money i mean they're not getting they're not keeping that money they're not it's not turning into profit for them it's literal waste and it is astounding no. So I, I usually tell people, yeah, like if they're evaluating the product, say like like busy busy. If you have busy busy, where labor tracking, you can buy it with telematics, say it's Vision Link or whatever telematics system you are. If the combination of that is less than a hundred dollars per person, I mean, I guess in my opinion, I'm, what I'm saying is, evaluate what works the best for your company, and price should not be a factor unless it's well over a hundred dollars per person or per person and, and machine combination. I mean. If it's anywhere under $100, like, like I don't think it, as a business owner, I would say if I was looking at one solution and it was $35 combination of labor and telematics and another solution that was $50 per person, combination of labor and telematics, if the $50 one was just a little bit better, go for that one. I mean, price should not be a factor to you when you're managing that expensive of resources. You should be looking at what is going to do the very best job for your company. And I love this too, because it's coming from a business owner. Not like when you're talking about this, you're not wearing your busy, busy software hat. You're wearing your, Hey, I'm an excavation business owner. This is how I That's make right. my damn decisions. It's, it's cool. Yeah. We've talked a lot about business owners, but uh-huh. the real people that are using this are the foremen are the operators are, are, is everyone out in the field? Employees. Yes. You're em- right. Employees. Why as an employee, why should I care about this? Oh my gosh. Aaron. I was like another podcast. No, <laughs> no just kidding. I'll, well, I'll tell you why I would care about it if I was an employee. If you are an A player, if you are a person who is confident in your ability to do great things for your company, to, to produce revenue, to be highly productive, all that kind of stuff, you want to be aligned with a company that is also an A player. If a company is not tracking data, 
and is not data driven, they are they are literally dying at a slow rate. It is not a company that attracts A players. If you're an A player, you want to be tracked. You want the time tracking. You want the performance tracking. You want the notes, the photos, the daily reports. You want to just show what you're doing because it's it's so exciting and it's so awesome. If I was being recruited by companies to go work for them and I was a really great operator knowing what I know now, I would not work for a company that didn't have a really good ability to give me systems that communicate my performance. Why? Because one of the problems that has existed in the construction industry forever is because an employee can perform at an extremely high level and never get noticed. Mm. Never get noticed for raises, never get noticed for training, opportunities, advancement in the company, all of those things. And so if a company is data-driven, you've got a higher probability of being noticed for the high performance that you're giving, right? And if they're not data-driven, you have a low probability of being noticed. I mean, I mean, you could still get noticed. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's a far lower probability. So in, in Busy Busy, we've actually got a lot of customers from employees that go from, that end up leaving one company and going to another and saying, hey, you should try out Busy Busy. I used it in my old company. The other thing the employees like is it becomes transparent. Like, you know, they're tracking their hours on the Busy Busy app. They can see the reports too. The employee can see how much time they're they're going to get in their paycheck, but they can also see reports on what they've done throughout the year. You know, so it's kind of cool. It's like looking at your Audible, how much time have you listened to your books, you know? Yeah. And so it, it becomes engaging. And, you know, you have some employees that will resist it saying, wow, are you tracking me because you don't trust me? And that's the cultural thing. You have to explain, no, that's not the reason. We literally are trying to understand our business better. And I guess connected with all of that, it, for me, when I talk about the employees, it's all about opportunity. If my company is tracking data, I want to give them good data because that means they're going to bid more profitably. They're going to get more profitable jobs. If they're more profitable, they've got better ability to give me raises, bonuses, take care of me, give me a good future for me and my family. I mean, all of those things. I, I love all that. And people, they love having a scoreboard. Yes, that's right. I keep thinking of questions here. If you have the owner of a company that's nervous about giving the employees the data, because that is a new uh-huh. concept and, and people are very private in this industry. A lot of times they like to keep the numbers and production and, and all that to themselves. How do you kind of talk them into, Hey, you really ought to give your people that data. Cause it only makes your company better. Well, first off, busy, busy has a really great amount of permission settings. So, so the owner doesn't have to give anybody any data. He doesn't want to. Yeah. The only data everybody gets is the data on themselves. So like an employee can see the amount of hours, not not wages, nothing, just the amount of hours and the time they've worked on different projects, right? Gotcha. But as far as the full job costing of the project, you know, whether by dollar, which Busy Busy has, or, or simply by hours, the owner gets to choose what he wants to give to who. So what do you recommend? I mean, what do you recommend they, they give? What's for your, for your company? What what are the kind of permissions do you do you require? I think the the greatest amount of waste in the construction industry is from not setting proper expectations with your people. Yeah. And so I recommend at very least that they, you know, busy, busy does a budgeting system. You can set an hour, you can set hour and dollar budget for your project uh, um, based on labor. I recommend at very least the supervisors have a labor hour budget for every project they go on. When you bid the job, you expected it was going to be so many man hours. And in our industry, it's man hours connected with machines, right? And busy, busy, you can set the permission that the supervisor can see that. And so even if you don't want them to see the exact dollars it's costing or not, that's fine. They need to see the man hours because like you pointed out, everybody wants to see a score if they're a high producer and they want to have a goal. And so you, you can set that right in the app and you can let your supervisors manage for that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, we just covered a whole lot. 
So he did. Yeah. Holy smokes. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we're, we're, we're done here? No. Well, okay. I guess I'll touch on one more thing. You know, we talked about how do you change the industry? Okay. And I talked about it being a cultural shift. Yep. When you're trying to introduce change into your company, like I guess what I want to address is a contractor sitting here thinking, wow, my company's kind of out of date. I really need to make this change. I'm not sure how my guys are going to embrace this. It's going to be hard. I don't know what my first step is. That's what I want to address is, if you're going to do that, the way to do it is you don't start with the employees or the team members that are the most resistant to change. You start with the ones that embrace it the most. Like you, what you want to do is start with your, your tech savviest crew, supervisor, person, whatever, yeah. because what you're trying to do is create a demonstration so that you start there and say, Hey, you know, go to your person who buys the, new, the, the latest iPhone or latest Android, whatever, whoever's, you know, your person that you're like, that's the gadget guy. He always likes new gadgets. Start with him and get them started on using this new technology, whether it's physical or, or, or anything else. Because what that happens is it, is it demonstrates the value, and then that demonstration rolls through the whole company, and it also demonstrates how easy it is. Because you get one person using it, and, and you've got these old, older, say, crew members that say, oh, I've, been, I've never wanted that, it's too difficult. And that person says, oh, no, it's easy, look, let me show you. It's literally uh, just three clicks on your app, and you're there. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's called the Law of Diffusion of Innovation. Okay. How you introduce a new idea. Yeah. I guess it, it, it also helps too, because now you have peers teaching you. you. You don't just have this tech guy showing you how this app works. You have, no, you're, you know, your dozer operator actually explaining it to you and, and you're willing to listen to him rather than the tech guy. That's right. You're exactly right. Yeah. It, it, you're, you're literally creating a cultural shift through your company. So you start with the people that are most likely to adopt the early adopters and then move from there through your company. This doesn't apply just to time tracking. It applies to absolutely anything. I mean, new means and methods, new equipment, everything. It does. It's a literal a market adoption law. If you want to introduce a new idea into a market and your company, your employees is a market, then you do this. And, and it's amazing how it goes through your company. And and it will succeed if you do it that way. And in a busy, busy, we, we literally help guide companies through it if they want. Like if they want to, we will literally help guide them through the introduction into their company. Hmm. Wow. Well, that was a lot. And I learned a lot because I'm, I'm about to start developing a software. So yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Well, feel free to reach out to me anytime. I really appreciate it. And you've done a great job interviewing. You asked the right questions to get me going. So yeah, we could have probably five different podcasts about different topics here. uh, Yeah. No, I've done a great job. I have to shut myself up here because I already have, I I have a ton of other questions I want to ask, but yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk soon. I, I would love to talk to you about what we're trying to do and try to get some advice. Cool. Excellent. Well, Isaac Barlow of uh, Busy Busy, if someone's listening to this and they want to look you guys up, learn about Busy Busy, what do they do? Where do they go? The best place to go is just to busybusy.com on the website or download Busy Busy on the App Store, you know, either Apple or Google Play, or they can call us at 855-BUSY-BUSY. Easy enough. And then there's a free version and paid version, correct? That's right. They can literally try it out for free with their entire crew, and it's free forever. We will never change that. They they can use it. And we have a lot of companies that do. We have a ton of companies. I think we have about 5,000 users that just use the free version. That's unbelievable. Okay, awesome. Well, Isaac, I, I again, I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll be talking soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Aaron. All right. And like every other episode, please share this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it. That's how we're building the audience. 
that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're trying to help as many people in the dirt world as possible, and we need your help to do it. So please share. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.